As Rich said, I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm coming from the table service, which is our Sunday night service here. So I must say I'm astonished that this place even has windows. I didn't know. It's always so dark in here. But it's fun to see the sun shining in here. I love to write letters. I take that back. I like to type out letters. My handwriting looks like that of a four-year-old child, and I still fully rely on the art of cursive, which isn't helping out my legibility. When I was dating my husband, we were long distance, and we put a lot of time and thought into writing emails to each other daily. For one of our anniversaries, I gave him a black binder full of all of our emails we had written in the last year printed out. They were full of bad typos, even worse jokes, and the daily adventures our days had caused. The end of the letters were the mushy stuff, the really important stuff. This is where we would talk about our future plans together, love, and rainbows. The last part was a joke. (laughs) When you get towards the end of a letter, you really have to give it your all. All your last important sentiments, the lasting impressions you want people to sit with. We have been in Philippians these past few months, getting to know the church and Paul's relationship with them. Tonight, we near, I mean, today, gosh, see, I'm already in the table language. Today, we near the end. Chapter four is the last in the Philippians letter. From walking through the other chapters, we've gotten the idea that there is a division in the Philippian church. Nothing uncommon in today's church, too, unfortunately. But Paul gives great advice and encouragement that this reality is one of choice. Open with me, please, to Philippians 4, 1 through 7. We'll also have it on the screen. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my crown and joy, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Yudia and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul makes strides to unify the church, to say, you've been at odds And it's not helping the gospel. And there is good work to be done. Instead of the way you've been acting, be this way. It will be better for you and better for the church. First, he addresses Yudia and Sintiki, two women who are dealing with an unnamed dispute. If you're anything like me, when you read the Bible and you get to the weird, unpronounceable names, you kind of gloss over and skip ahead to the juicy stuff. But it's worth asking the question, Why is Paul addressing these women specifically, and what does it mean for me today? Paul clearly felt that not only these women, but the entire church had something crucial 
to lose if they didn't come together to resolve their issues. I love that it was important enough to Paul to speak to them directly in this letter. God had and has plans for the individual of the church. And they were called to reconciliation first and foremost to further God's gospel. As Paul says, they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. The fact is, Paul is talking to real people with real problems, not just an ambiguous community with fake and general problems. This is a letter, and it is personal. And these two women have real problems. Two women that Paul really wants to see work for the kingdom and who have done really good kingdom work in the past. And instead of commanding them or calling out their specific sin or disagreement, he just says in an uncomplicated fashion to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is how Paul starts the end of his letter on a personal note. And it invites the community to support one another, to unify and to be like Christ. At CPC, Easter is a time when I think we really unite well as a church. Every service is really packed with familiar and new faces, and there is a togetherness that happens amongst friends and family. This last year for Easter, I got to be a part of the planning process for the table's Easter service. Our team wanted to create a space where people could really go wild for Jesus. Just kick off your shoes, let your hair down, and really worship the Lord. Um, Full disclosure, I did try to get kazoos and noisemakers for the service, but that decision got vetoed. Um, So maybe next year and all questions can be directed to Steve Haynes. So we started the Easter night waiting in the great room. We had it decorated in standard party apparel. There were streamers and lanterns, and we had trays with candy and gummy worms. And so we're waiting in there. We're just waiting in anticipation as the service is building. Eventually, we enter the sanctuary, and it's dimly lit. We sit down, and worship starts. And at this point, I personally feel like a literal 4th of July fireworks celebration. I was freaking out. I was clapping, jumping, hooting, and hollering. But I was standing next to Kyle Jackson, which means my attempts to be loud were both quieted and futile. (laughs) To end our worship, we took communion, but not just any communion. Kyle did the words of institution, and in true fashion, He was a festival. He got the crowd to jump up, high five. We were punching the air as if we were all told we were going to skip winter next year. It was delightfully and ridiculously holy. I felt overcome with the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, we all joined in the great room for food and music and togetherness, all little buzzed with the Spirit inside of us. Paul writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And the message translates this verse to say, Celebrate God all day. Every day. I mean, revel in him. Revel in him. On Easter, we reveled in him. We were all in awe of a holy celebration that was before us and happening inside of us. Because we were celebrating a God who was near. 
Paul tells us in verse 5 that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He is. We became present to him that night because he makes his presence known to us daily. Because he delights in us, we choose to delight in him. With God, relationship is a two-way street. He creates us, affirms us, commands us, invites us, and liberates us. And in turn, we come to him just as we are. We surrender, seek, ask, delight, worship, and celebrate. As James 4.8 so eloquently puts it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Whether we like it or not, or fully understand it or not, we worship a God who responds to our being. A God who responds to our being. He responds to what we say and do. And the grace of it all is that we get to respond to everything that he says and does too. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in Greek is translated as kairo, which means to delight in God's grace. Literally, to experience God's grace. Rejoice means to experience God's grace. One reason Paul is so adamant to unify the church is that we really can't come to a place of worshiping God if we're divided in the church, the house of God. We, like Yudia and Sintiki, need to reconcile first so that we can rejoice more fully to delight in God's graces. We are incapable of constant delight when we have junk that needs to be cleaned. Why, why would we want to experience God's grace? Why wouldn't we? God is here, and we can, either, we can choose to either acknowledge and experience his grace or ignore it. And no, personally, I cannot afford to ignore his grace. The Lord is here. He is now. And he is a God who responds to us and asks that we, and asks to be responded to. His presence calls for immediate action. His presence calls for immediate action. So how do we do this? It sounds nice, right? In verses 5 and 7, Paul gives the reader some really practical advice for getting to a place where the Philippians can rejoice always. To be clear, Paul is not telling the church to be happy all the time. That's not possible unless you're Richard Simmons. I believe what Paul hopes for followers of Christ is that we will be actively entering into a process that will leave us to experience God's grace. That is to say that it is a process. We need to work on things in our lives with God to get to that place where we can rejoice always, to delight in his grace always. There are four actions that verses 5 through 7 advise that I think can really help us bring, bring us to a place of rejoicing more. Number one, don't be anxious about anything. Number two, let your gentleness be evident to all. Three, in prayer and petition, present your request to God. And four, in thanksgiving, present your request to God. I love 
birthdays. I love celebrating other people's birthdays, and I love celebrating my own birthday. I'll be honest. Last year, I had my 26th birthday. I was on the phone with a girlfriend deciding on how to celebrate myself. Admittedly, not a humble experience, but I have no regrets. After the phone call, we concluded that I should definitely have a birthday party for myself, and it should definitely be themed. I love costumes, and I love the 50s and 60s, so it only seemed illogical to have a 50s and 60s themed birthday party. I would play records, make a jello mold, wear pearls, smoke candy cigarettes, and eat some deviled eggs. I was two steps short from inviting Dan Anderson to dress up like President Eisenhower. <laughs> he declined, I don't know why. These things, in my mind, made it markedly the 50s. Unfortunately, the planning process had begun too late, leaving only two weeks notice to invite people to this party. This is the point in the, in the story where I started to worry. I'm a people pleaser, and hospitality can bring me to a dark place of no return when it comes to worrying. I was constantly checking my online RSVPs um, to see who could make it to my party on such, late, on such late notice. This caused me to worry about how much food to buy, which led to an unnecessary trip to Sam's Club where all the food is the size of a small horse. I even spent hours one Saturday scouring Minneapolis for vintage glass tumblers to drink out of, like that was the most important thing that needed to happen. I had anxiety that people had better things to do. They didn't care about me. Deep down, I feared I wasn't good enough. My girlfriend had to talk me off the ledge a few times, and my husband had to endure more birthday conversation than anyone should in one lifetime. I was clearly out of my mind. And the saddest part was, it was supposed to be a celebration. It should have been a fun, delightful process. But ask my husband, he was anything but delighted. I believe at one point he stated, we would never plan a birthday party again. <laughs> I was too worked up. I worried. I did anything but delight. The party ended up being really great. It was super fun. People wore amazing outfits, lace, ties, retro eyewear were plentiful. A lot of people were able to make the last minute invite and in the end, to the eye rolling of my husband, I declared, we should do this every year. <laughs> but if I'm honest, there were moments that I was more worried about who couldn't make the party instead of enjoying who was there. I spent more time worrying about the food that wasn't being eaten than enjoying the conversations around me, cleaning up food and drinks before people had even put their shoes on to leave. It might sound silly, but it was honestly how I fe felt, and it affected my way of life at the time. Maybe it's not a party for you, but have you ever worried about something that later seemed so pointless for you to spend time thinking about? Have you ever worried you weren't good enough or maybe good-looking enough? Have you ever had anxiety over making sure everyone is enjoying themselves? Ever cared too much about what someone else thought when in the reality is? They do not define you as a person, only God defines you. Worried you wouldn't have enough money to do and get everything you need or just want? 
Have you ever just worried too much? Feared you would be alone in life? Feared you might get stuck in the same place forever? Fear you might never settle down? Worried you might never get over that person, that addiction, that loss, and that pain? To the point where you are motionless from the weight of it all. You can't move towards experience God's grace because you can't move at all. You can't move towards experience God's grace because you can't move at all. Proverbs 12.25 says, Worry weighs a person down. I felt the reality of that at my party. I've spent a lot of my life worrying over my body image, over relationships, over a sale, traveling, parties, girlfriends, my job, finances, debt, my future, my status, and my schedule. I wonder what God's grace would have felt like all those times I didn't leave space for it. All the times I probably needed it the most. I don't want to dwell on my past worries, but wonder the potential to rejoice more going forward. It sounds like a better way of life to me. Because worry does not allow us to delight in God's grace. Worry does not allow us to delight in God's grace. How can we move towards delight if we are weighed down by anxiety, fear, and worry? Paul gives really great advice for this. He writes in verse 6, But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let's start with the first part. In every situation, by prayer and petition. These are words of actions. They are verbs. We actually have to do them. Faith in action. In prayer and petition, we are coming towards God. We are handing off the weight to him, becoming lighter in the process and perhaps more full of light ourselves. Have you ever written a letter or sent an email that was really hard for you to write? Sometimes for myself, it's easier to write first how I feel before facing someone I'm in conflict with. There's that moment you click send or you put it in that letter in the mail. That moment when we often say it took the weight off of our shoulders. That feeling of deep relief in our muscles that lets you breathe easier. I used to keep a prayer journal and I would write my prayers and praises in it every night. Nothing too wordy, a few sentences before bed. It was amazing over time to see how those prayers got answered. Not always in the most expected or wanted way, but always answered nonetheless. We worship a God that wants to hear from us. I was on a run the other day and ran past a sign on a church that read, If you're feeling far from God, who moved? If you're feeling far from God, who moved? I kind of smirked at the simplicity of the statement. It's easy to move away from God when we are frustrated and then consequently blame him for being so distant when really it was us that took a few steps backwards. Praying is not always easy. It is not always easy. I know this. It is a very vulnerable thing to do. It is an act of faith. When we pray, we acknowledge our utter dependence on God. 
while at the same time expressing our complete trust in him. The second way to experience God's grace more is to let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Paul was telling the Philippians to be for each other, to support, unify, and encourage one another. If we want to experience God's grace, his holiness and goodness, we actually have to start practicing that with one another first. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's an oldie but a goodie. And when we practice gentleness, we usually receive it back tenfold. When we are kind to others, we leave space for delight. Smile at someone in the store. Thank them graciously. Actually listen when someone talks. Don't cut people off on the road. Share food, your home, your money, and your time. Big and small, when we are gentle with one another, we create a gentler world leaving space for everyone to delight in God's grace. The third thing we can do to be more available to experience God's grace is very similar to the first step mentioned. We need to come to God with our requests in thanksgiving. Not only do we need to be clear about our needs, hurts, struggles, and questions, but we also need to be clear with God what we're just thankful for. I mentioned how I love birthdays, including my own, One reason is I love gifts. I love to get the perfect gift for a friend, and I love to get the perfect gift from a friend. Let's be honest, who doesn't love a good birthday gift? Sometimes people think just because you're past the age of 20, you shouldn't really need a birthday gift, but I beg to differ. I don't need anything huge or fancy. I know economic times are rough. And I really find a lot of joy in the little things that my friends and family gift me. It's always the thought that counts. Growing up in a divorced family, I celebrated two birthdays. I had one with my mom and one with my dad. To this day, I will hear from my mom on my birthday, get a little something from her, maybe go to a meal together. And then I'll do the same with my father, except for this year. My birthday rolled around, and I eagerly and faithfully checked the mailbox daily to see what gifts I would behold. Yes, there are a few things wrong with this picture. Then in the mail, a few days before my birthday, was my mom's gift. Wonderful. Then my birthday came and went. One thing was missing, a birthday present from my dad. I checked the mail day after day, assuming it had to be lost, waiting to hear my dad's voice on the other end of the phone asking, Hey, did you get my card? Nothing. I was shocked. My first birthday without a material gift from my dad. Now I assume this day comes for everyone. A day when your family decides, you're too old. Your job is too stable. You already have everything. Whatever the reason. Now the crazy thing is, my dad would do anything for me. And he does do a lot of things for me without ever expecting it. His pickup truck is always ready to use on a moment's notice. Breakfast at Bunny's is always on him. Tools and handyman time are aplenty on his agenda. And he's even a great grandpa to my dog. But here I was caught in a moment of ungratefulness. How could you, Father? 
How could you not lavish gifts upon me, your only daughter? Does that question sound familiar? I had no space for gratitude. I had a gratitude attitude. That's right, I made up that term. I had a gratitude attitude. There's a definition if you need it. I could not possibly remember all the things my dad does give me when I absolutely do not deserve it. All the ways he lavishes things with, lavishes me with things that only he can provide that sometimes I don't even need. I expected something from my father that he was not obligated to give me. And I was quick to forget all the gifts he gives me all the time that go unasked for and unthanked for. The same sentiment could be said of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we are so quick to expect things from God and so slow to be grateful for the ways he lavishes things on us when we don't deserve. Our Father loves us and he knows our hearts. Matthew six thirty-two through 33 says, Your Heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. What is possibly missing from that sentence? It is everything we need. If you're not thankful, you're only ungrateful. Paul tells us to worry less, practice gentleness, pray, and be thankful in the process. To move towards God and to acknowledge his nearness. To respond to him. And in turn, our faithful God will respond to us. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we move towards God, he moves towards us. Do you want to know what rejoicing in God always looks like? It is peace. It's a constant cycle. We submit our fears to him, delight in him, experience his grace, He gives us a kind of peace that is beyond our human comprehension, and we again delight in him because we do not have to live under the weight of worry. These steps are not magical. They won't fix everything overnight. They are part of a large process. Like all relationships, the one we have with God takes time and care and intentionality. It takes verbs We need to do things to draw near to our God, to respond to his being. We need to be aware of his presence, his responses to our being, and listen for the answers to our prayers. Hand over our burdens. Be gracious and gentle. If you are willing to engage in the process, you might find that rejoicing in God is your new reality. It won't look like happiness or a smile on your face always because peace lies deeper than what our faces can portray. But if you choose, and it is your choice, you can move towards God. He is near and he is delightful. Let us pray. God, we praise you for your ability to be right here and right now. We admit the tasks Paul sets before us seem a little daunting at times. 
but you have made them very worth it. You are a worthy God. Let us prove that to you daily. Amen.